You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Nasce da questo una disputa. Se egli è meglio essere amato che temuto o è converso. This raises the question whether it is better to be loved than feared or the contrary. My reply is that one would like to be both, but it is difficult to combine love and fear. If one has to choose between them, it is far safer to be feared than loved. Albert Russell Ascoli is Terrell Distinguished Professor of Italian Studies at the University of California, Berkeley, and was awarded the Rome Prize for Study at the American Academy in Rome. With Victoria Kahn, he co-edited Machiavelli and the Discourse of Literature, which includes his essay, Machiavelli's Gift of Counsel. He's written an introduction to a new edition of Niccolo Machiavelli's The Prince, translated by Peter Constantine. Thank you for joining me, Professor Ascoli. My pleasure. In your introduction to The Prince... You say that its publication was a scandal. It grew to be a scandal in the years that followed it. What I was really trying to talk about is how it came very quickly during the course of the 16th century throughout Italy, but even more throughout the rest of Europe, to be seen as a kind of demonic form of politics which contradicted all things holy and virtuous. It became that even more so because, in fact, the countries where the prince was most condemned tended to be the countries which had become Protestant over the course of the 16th century. And they took Machiavelli, in a sense, to represent what they were typically saying that the church represented, namely a a complete deformation of what true religion was supposed to do. You you describe it as upside-down ethics. (laughs) (laughs) I do, in fact. Machiavelli in The Prince systematically looks at the categories of traditional morals and traditional ethics, and he uses the word virtu very frequently during the course of the treatise. But as we go along, we discover that virtu does no longer mean, as we would suppose it means, good behavior. Rather, it means personal power. It means the force to do what is necessary in a given situation even, in fact, if that means standing ethics on their head, so that he will say, according to morals and according to what I, I think and feel, it's better, it's better to get along with people, it's better to be loved than feared, but a prince, if he wants to be successful, has to be feared more often than loved. He says that everybody knows that it's a good thing for the prince to keep his word, but princes who keep their words tend to be the ones who lose power the most quickly, And so instead, giving one's word and then going back on it is probably one of the most successful political tools. If one sticks to looking at those kind of remarks, and Machiavelli takes great glee in sort of turning these categories on their head, one does indeed get the Machiavelli that one has heard so much about. Machiavelli is kind of one of those authors who everybody has read without reading him. We already know what his name means. We know what Machiavellian means. In fact, if one reads Machiavelli's Prince, and if one indeed goes beyond the Prince and reads some of other Machiavelli's other works, we discover that, uh, that he has very different things to say about politics than we're used to hearing, and that sometimes, indeed, he is, is contradicting himself or 
trying to find a way to reconcile goodness and the necessary evils that one uses in governing. Your introduction, I thought it was very interesting. The very first part of your introduction consists of mostly questions. It's just a series. You batter us with a series of questions, and and I couldn't help but think that you were echoing Machiavelli's questioning of authority himself, and, and that seems to be one of the things he's interested in. Indeed. One of the ways that Machiavelli has traditionally been read, and this is this is a way that's more typical in Italy than it is than it is over here, where Machiavelli is actually valued as a great thinker and a patriot, although uh, not without his problems. So there's a long-standing tradition, in fact, of seeing the prince in particular as being an expose rather than a, a rather than a how-to manual, teaching people uh, to understand how princes actually work, and uh, so that they can better resist them. I'm afraid I would like to believe that of Machiavelli, who who I find very appealing, a very appealing character. Uh, I think it's a little more complicated than that, and that's why I, I address uh, his work with a series of questions, questions which, if one tried to answer them, would probably take a, a full book or so, probably more. When I read Machiavelli, I felt it was like a, a revelation to me, and it is indeed because it does more reveal these the, the methodology rather than revel in it. Mm-hmm. Well, I think what we see Machiavelli trying to do throughout The Prince is to find a way to make politics work. He lived in a time when there was a sort of widespread breakdown of politics and a whole series of, of wars taking place a, across the Italian peninsula between Italian states and also even more so by the new, newly sort of consolidated nation states of Spain and France, which had sort of taken up the habit of invading Italy periodically and of having wars with each other, which they staged on Italian soil, and so on and so forth. And Machiavelli at the same time saw a, a church which was indeed somewhat more interested in temporal power in, uh, and in politics and in force than one traditionally believed uh, the church to be, that the church should be. So he is looking for a way to recover a kind of stability in his world and to make order out of what seems to be verging on chaos. And I think if one reads The Prince not so much as a how-to manual for everyday politics, but rather as how to confront a disastrous situation where you can't count on a system of justice, where you can't count on an educated political class to do the right thing, where there are conflicting interests being played out all over the place. In fact, what Machiavelli addresses in The Prince is the question, and this is, this is really the basic question that he talks about, is how to find, found a new principality, how to find, found a new state. And when he talks about that, uh, he talks about the need for extraordinary measures. But his goal is always to arrive at a new kind of order, a new way of being able to manage politics and to create, as I said before, a kind of stability which is respectful of the new realities of things, which in the case of Italy might mean, say, being more cooperative among these individual little states so that they're not overwhelmed constantly by invasions of Spaniards and, and, and Frenchmen. Machiavelli, in fact, didn't 
succeed in this, nor did anybody else. And, and by the end of the 16th century, Italy was pretty well under the control of the Spanish, uh, either directly or indirectly. So he was prophetic in a certain way of what, what his country was in store for. When you get to his other works, for example, the discourses in particular, what you see is an attempt to show how a country which has a regular set of laws and political practices, how that can function and how that, not without moments of violence or a need for extraordinary measures from time to time, particularly when somebody is attacking you or, or some individual within the state tries to, uh, uh, to usurp power. But it, if you look at it from the perspective of the discourses and from other writings of Machiavelli, the step that one takes in The Prince is the first step to making something, to beginning a state. Now, that's not to overlook the fact, of course, that, that many of the methods he describes are, are repellent. I think, for example, of his description of Cesare Borgia consolidating his power in the, the Emilia-Romagna district of Italy by sending in a ferocious governor who killed off all of the, uh, the, the bandits and so on and so forth. And then when this guy had established himself as a hated figure throughout Romagna but had established peace, then left him one day, this governor of his, cut in half in the middle of a piazza in, one, in a city in, in Emilia-Romagna. And he speaks of this with, with great admiration as, as a very successful tactic that, uh, that Borgia employed. You speak of this at one point as a dark meditation, and mm-hmm. I really like that because it's, it gives us – the prince seems to be a, a, a little bit of a – not so much a how-to to manual, but a, in, in case of emergency, open this. Right. Well, one of the things that I try to do in the introduction is to ask what actually Machiavelli means to us right now. And part of the problem there is that is that as I was as I've been saying it, it Machiavelli's works address very specific situation: the world that he lives in, the world of Florence, the world of Florence within the world of Italy, the papacy, the French, the Spanish, with uh, certain kinds of eco- certain kinds of economic realities, certain kinds of military realities. The cannon had just been introduced, but we're a long way from modern warfare. So the question is. What can the prince tell us today, other than that politics is always is is often carried out by violence and illegal means? And what I think I get from Machiavelli as a as as a lesson for thinking about the world we live in is is that uh, what does one do when the modes and orders, as he would call them, the practice, the political practices and and systems, are breaking down or are going on but not accomplishing what they need to to serve the populace, not respecting the new realities in which they find in, in which he found himself in, in which we find ourselves now. For me, reading Machiavelli is a way of making me think about being a political subject. How do I understand my place in a world of politics? which admittedly is a world where it's much less possible to have for an individual to have a voice than it was in Machiavelli's time. 
You know, we're talking about an economy of scale that, that makes it very difficult to imagine sort of how one is that virtuous person that Machiavelli says who single-handedly transforms the world. But it does give one pause, and it, and it asks uh, of me, in any case, uh, to think not so much about whether you know, I'm going to vote for this candidate or that candidate in a given situation, or whether uh, my political, uh, the political leadership of the country is letting me down or not, uh, but rather what kind of actions can I take in order to think about, and in, in order to mm, participate in politics. And that Machiavelli's own life was dedicated to, the, to his desire to be part of politics, not to be the prince, not at all, but to be uh, somebody who, as he says at one point in a, in a letter describing the writing of the prince, is somebody who is willing, like Sisyphus, to roll a stone up a hill if it's, uh, if it's politically helpful. Uh, he'll do anything to make himself useful. Perhaps I wouldn't go quite that far. Let's put it that, put it that way. But when I say a dark meditation, I mean trying to understand what the realities of a situation are, what the possibilities are and what the limitations are of what one can accomplish politically. One thing that I found interesting is the, the structure of the book. It, it, it's written in a structure that seems very modern today. It still mm -hmm. seems it's eminently readable. And, and could you comment on, on this structure? Because, uh, as I say, it's written for a modern attention span. Uh-huh. Well, uh, yes, it's, a, it's, it's short. I think it was written at the time for a papal attention span because it was actually written for the Medici family who it's directed to a, uh, to a sort of lesser Medici who was the titular ruler of Florence, but it was actually directed to Pope Leo X, the Medici pope who was in power in the, in the second decade of the, of the 16th century. So he wanted to get his message across quickly and almost in the form of sound bites at, at various, in, in various ways. He sets it out as it's going to be a kind of systematic treatise. He's going to explain how uh, principalities work in all times. Very quickly, he zeroes in on this idea of the new prince and what happens when you're founding a new state and, and really have to uh, establish a kind of order uh, that will last. And he does this sort of gradually by working through a series of problems and giving a series of short case studies that he draws lessons from. But as he's going along, he's painting a picture of the world that he lives in, uh, a very picture of the world he lives in. And by the time he gets to the end of it, he has at a certain point, about halfway through the book, maybe a little bit more, uh, started this process of, uh, if I may, deconstructing the relationship between ethics and politics, which is in a way what he's most famous for, to suggest how how these traditional systems are not, the traditional ways of conceiving how ethics and politics work together are not providing uh, a stable world. And by the end, he's he has kind of drawn a very clear picture of the world and he invites the Medici to come in and do something about it. So it works through a series of precepts, sometimes very gruesome precepts, sometimes very astute precepts, but it's always directed at describing the current situation and trying to get somebody to pay attention and do something about it for him. One thing, I, I, each chapter 
and they're very short chapters. Has mm-hmm. a has a very simple and I think elegant structure. And I'm wondering right. if this had been seen before. He'll lay out essentially an abstract concept. Mm-hmm. Then he'll give a, a, a one or more very concrete examples that even in today, even if we're not necessarily familiar with the politics of the situation or the history of the time, we can still pretty much uh, grasp what's going on. And then he comes back to the abstract, and it's this is a very mm-hmm. simple and elegant structure. Yeah, and he he actually is following a model that was available to him the the use of exempla for teaching, uh, giving a concrete example and then drawing a lesson out of it. It's just that the examples he gives are unusual, and the lessons he draws are even more unusual as, <laughs> as, you, uh, as you go through it. I should say, though, that many of the things that one hears about Machiavelli and the prince and, and come from, from chapters where he's talking about not keeping faith or it being better to be feared than loved, Machiavelli's chief piece of advice in the prince, and absolutely the thing that he thinks is the most important other than employing him, Machiavelli, to to give you advice about how to be a prince, is that you should have a citizen army. That is, you should have a, a draft. That He attributes most of the woes of his country to the fact that the Florentines are rich, and instead of fighting their own battles, they hire mercenaries to do it. The mercenaries either don't fight because uh, you're not paying them enough to die, or they end up sacking your city because they've got nothing better to do and be, uh, and because they have no particular loyalty to you. And they know where the money is. And they, know, and they absolutely know where the money is. And that's not really what Machiavelli is famous for. But, but if you think of the consequences of what it means to have a citizen army, it's a debate that we haven't really engaged in for a long time here in, in the United States, and, and, and it had, there are all kinds of problems with the idea of a draft. But what he sees is that citizens who fight for their country are invested in their country, will give more stability, will make it a city not just of one person who's in charge of it, but of a, a collective enterprise. And you wouldn't get that idea just off the bat reading The Prince, but it's at the very center of what, of what he talks about. One thing about the right, the the prose in this book, I, I, am I wrong in thinking that he's being kind of funny? There's a sense of humor to this. Yes. <laughs> Rather dark, but nonetheless, yeah. oh, I, I found it very absolutely. amusing. Absolutely. Uh, irony, sarcasm, these are Machiavelli's tools. I mean, of course, he realizes that virtually every precept that he gives, or, or many of them, are going to be understood to be comic inversions of the accepted wisdom about things. So he says them in the most uh, scandalous way possible. He, we talked about, you know, uh, the book creating a scandal. Well, Machiavelli sets out to create that scandal, and he does this by saying things in, in the most audacious way possible and bringing out the black humor in the world that he's describing, where indeed the spectacle of of a judge cut in half lying in the middle of a piazza becomes at once, uh, creates, as he says, stupefaction and satisfaction in the populace that watches it, and laughter and amazement in us that he's actually saying such a thing. So yes, indeed, that reading Machiavelli is a great pleasure. One should say that this is not unique to Machiavelli. It's a kind of it's a very Florentine, very Italian, and, and at the time, very Florentine sense of humor, which, however, comes out in this very pronounced uh, way in Machiavelli. 
he he's brilliant with aphorisms. Uh-huh. There are I, I, you you mentioned earlier about sound bites. I this is a man who was ready for 20th century communications long before the 20th century. Right. It, it one of the things that's interesting about Machiavelli, it, he does indeed he he loves these phrases and he he loves to sort of condense give you a condensed idea of what one should do in any given situation. But if again, if you read all the way through the book, what you see is that he'll give you this absolute rule that you have to follow, and then he'll give you a series of counterexamples of situations where it won't work. And this is one of the peculiar, peculiar things about Machiavelli is that he is giving political advice, and at the same time, he and which seems to be very simple and very straightforward, and at the same time, he's trying to bring out the complexities of the situation and make uh, his audience, whoever it might be, recognize that sometimes um, one way of doing things will work and sometimes it won't at all. And as he says, uh, the same person in two different situations will obtain opposite results and two different persons working in exactly opposite ways, given different circumstances, may be equally successful just because they're addressing their tactics to, to the circumstances. And it's that in a way that I like the best about Machiavelli, this from the point of view of the political, that he gives you a strong way of thinking about how to do politics, and at the same time, he makes it clear that these that these sound bites aren't sufficient in themselves; that they're not uh, they're not a panacea for uh, for political solutions. And it must be said that though they're sound bites, they're nothing like the sound bites that we get from most political in most political campaigns because they have content and <laughs> and <laughs> which most Af- which most uh, you know most sound bites in political campaigns don't I, I was really fascinated by and you mentioned this again in your introduction mm-hmm. the penultimate chapter where he talks about the uh, the need to be ready to change your plans, what you were talking about, to, to, uh, to prepare well in advance. Yeah, early in, early in the book, actually, he says that, that political problems are like a disease which is easy to cure if you catch it before its symptoms have manifested themselves fully, but is impossible to cure when the disease has really declared itself. And so you have to have be, be very careful and keep an eye out on what's going, what's going on, because uh, something that may seem like something very small right now uh, may turn into something very big down the road. And when it's small, you can do something about it, and when it's big, you can't. And uh, so he has that medical imagery. He also has an image of what he calls fortuna, which uh, means the sort of un- events that are out of our control, as a flood, which can be controlled if you ahead of time, build up dikes and, and levees and dams and so on and so forth. Curiously prophetic of the problems in New Orleans, actually. Very clear about how certain kinds of problems can only be solved if you foresee them happening when they're not happening and doing so, and, and do something about them. But then in other cases, he says that the thing to do is to just um, jump in and, and, uh, and take action uh, without really thinking about it. Yeah, he favors impetuousness over caution. He does at the end. He does at the end. But that's one of the places where he really contradicts himself 
uh, most dramatically because he, he has made such a good case for thinking about politics. And the person who he describes at the end who impetuously follows his violent nature uh, and tries to impose his will on the world is somebody who is not listening to Machiavelli, who isn't paying attention to people who are trying to teach him about politics, him or her about politics. It's an image which is very powerful, but from which Machiavelli and his book have disappeared completely as far as I'm concerned. And I, I don't know if how... Uh, how clear that is, really, but but he's very Machiavelli is very conscious of the problem of being somebody who has a message to communicate, but doesn't have any real good way of persuading the people who have to listen to him to listen to him. He is what he calls uh, early in the tr- in in the book a an unarmed prophet, and he says that unarmed prophets always. Uh, do very badly, whereas armed prophets uh, do very well. But his book is the book of somebody who doesn't have any way of, of persuading uh, people to follow his directions. And, and I might say, in addition, that if you're really a Machiavellian in the, in the sort of traditional sense, and if you've read Machiavelli's book, The Prince, and if you want to follow his directions to the letter, the first thing you do is throw Machiavelli in jail and pretend that you're nothing like him at all. <laughs> um, it, Machiavelli was, you know, he. this wasn't going to be a book that, uh, that did what uh, he wanted it to do, which was to, which was to get him back into the world of politics from which he'd been uh, cast out at a certain point when the Medici returned to become the overlords of Florence again. It's a book that really embraces contradiction and embraces and embraces the need to embrace contradiction that that says that we really can't uh, there's no one simple answer and particularly the utopian things that we often hear about the the utopian visions and he he's does not like any of this utopian stuff he's not buying that at all and there's a really great chapter where he talks about that yeah. well. Machiavelli is about dealing with politics in time, and he he tries to get the best lessons he can from what's happened in the past, and he tries to pro- project a future. Now, going back to that medical metaphor, it's not that easy to project a future from the present. And Machiavelli, although as realistic as he might be, as as pragmatic as he might be, doesn't want to maintain the status quo. He wants to make things better. And therefore, he too, in the end, contradicts himself by imagining a future Italy, which is uh, able to do all of the kinds of things that it's not able to do now. Um, It's a very different kind of utopia than, say, the Republic of Plato, which is based on intellectual acuity and moral superiority in in its rulers. That indeed is true. But it's utopian. It is utopian in one sense, which is in, in the desire to make a future that's better than the past. And reading Machiavelli, I think, makes one very aware that we can't live in an isolated present moment. Where we are now came from somewhere, and, and we're headed somewhere. And, um, and there are ways we can shape, there are ways we can interpret the past to help ourselves, and there are ways we can shape, help shape a future. But, but there's always a play between what what we with our virtu 
with our with our power, with our individual will and power, or collective will and power can do, and what fortuna, that is, all of the things that are out of our control, and God knows we're aware of uh, those things now much more, uh, even more acutely perhaps than Machiavelli was, since we're, it's not just, uh, you know, who might invade us or who might uh, uh, knock down our towers, blow up buildings, it's also, are we destroying the very atmosphere of the planet we're on? And it, it, it's at that, uh, this is going very far from what Machiavelli is talking about, of course, but it is, his politics is a politics which, which thinks about how to get from here to a future, uh, which, is, which is different and better, uh, but which can be accomplished in a realistic way. We think now of Machiavellian as being a, a, a pejorative term, eh? and that it, that it's scheming and it's evil and it's nefarious and underhanded. But I, I think though there, though he discusses those qualities in, in the prince and, and indeed sometimes seems to admire them, I think that that's not what the prince is about. Certainly not in the sort of limited way that that the word is used now. I, I'm, of course, not planning to try and make people change the way they use that word because it is now completely detached from anything that Machiavelli ever wrote. You can go back and you can find a few things. It's one of the hardest books to teach, you know, I mean, in fact, uh, because it is a book that people have read before they've read it. And so what they see is what they know already through that through that word. And getting getting people to, uh, getting students to think about what's actually there is, is quite difficult. So I think it's worth thinking about Machiavelli again. I think it's worth asking ourselves, you know, is Machiavelli Machiavellian? Certainly he wasn't in his own life. He was, had a pretty miserable uh, career in the end. The great works that we're, we know him for, The Prince, The Discourses, a couple of other things, um, were all written after he had lost the job that he that he most loved and were, for him, a kind of second best to what he was doing. So Machiavellian doesn't describe Machiavelli himself very well, and I would say it also doesn't describe his books very well, but it's a word that's going to go on meaning what it means. A question that I pose in the introduction is, is and this really is where one has to decide whether Machiavelli is the devil or not, um, is Machiavelli telling us to do things which aren't done and which nobody does and which will result in the breakdown of mora- uh, the uh, social f- social fabric and, and, and uh, ethics and politics as we know them? Or is he describing what's already there and asking us to think about how to deal with those things? It is Machiavelli, uh, one might say, if one were sort of uh, looking at things from from the left and looking at George Bush and and Dick Cheney and and uh, and uh, Donald Rumsfeld, um, one might say that they were Machiavellian. No, uh, I don't Machia- think so. They no, need, no, they should have read they, this book. <laughs> they, whatever they were trying to accomplish, they didn't. Um, that's clear. Uh, so. Whether Machiavelli would have advised staying out of Iraq or whether he would have given uh, some strong advice about how to do 
what they wanted to do better, I'm not going to say, but uh, I have no idea. But um, but he would have advised them to think about what they were doing. We've been speaking with Albert Russell Ascoli. He wrote the new introduction to a new translation of Niccolo Machiavelli's The Prince. Thank you for joining me, Professor Ascoli. My great pleasure. Thank you. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.